Proverbs. Proverbs chapter number 5. We continue on our journey through the book of Proverbs. And uh, like I said, uh, we're probably not going to try to go all of the way through Proverbs. Uh, We'll see how it goes. But somewhere we might uh, take a break from this. You know, I, I don't want anybody to get to the point that, you know, it's kind of the same old, same old. Uh, we don't want that to happen. It should never happen, but let's face it, sometimes it does. But you just pray for me that I'll know uh, when and if uh, it might be a good time to switch gears. But uh, in this chapter, uh, if I had to give it a title, it would be an admonition concerning adultery. An admonition concerning adultery. I said in the very beginning and have repeated myself that when it comes to the book of Proverbs, it is filled with practical advice. Uh, and In fact, the theme of Proverbs has to do with wisdom as opposed to folly. And whenever we think about, you know, life here on planet Earth and uh, practical advice, just, you know, everyday things that we need to know and dealing with various situations why it doesn't get any better than the book of Proverbs. That's why we ought to read it on a regular basis and not only read it, but take time to really study it. And uh, it's so amazing how God kind of puts things together. I mean, even as we are studying this tonight, and I look on the congregation and say, you know, I I look around and there's no, no need to even talk about a subject like this. Uh, you know, to this crowd, we don't have anything to worry about. Everybody here knows the Lord and loves the Lord. They're faithful to the Lord. And uh, so, you know, maybe we could spend our time better studying something else. Uh, and yet just today, I, I spent uh, a considerable amount of time, heartbreaking time, uh, talking to someone in regards to a situation that is just... So mind-boggling. I'm not at liberty to share the details or anything, but it's so mind-boggling that if you knew, you'd say, well, I I just can't believe that would have ever happened. And it did. And there are people hurting and grieving right now, and the problem is far from being solved. And uh, so these kind of things do happen. And, And there are things that we need to think about. Now, in this chapter, let's just look at an overview of it before we look at the details. And, and uh, three things, we'll divide it up. We're going to consider the first section this week and put the last two together next week. But this chapter commences with an admonition concerning adultery. And that's through the first 14 verses, and that's where we're going to camp out tonight. And that's where it commences. But it continues with advice concerning marriage. And so all of this is linked together. It's all related. And then it concludes with an argument for purity. And uh, if there was, you know, ever a place where we ought to see the need for wisdom, I mean, this is it. Because, uh, uh, well, as we look at this first section, you'll see why. In this first section, the first two verses, there's a plea for attention 
and, and notice what he says. My son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. Now, in this plea for attention, and let me just say that in most homes, sadly, there's not enough communication that goes on, especially between the parents and the children. Some way or another in this generation, we've got it in our mind that, you know, that we bring children into this world, we make sure they've got something to eat, we send them off to school, we just let them grow up uh, without any real assistance from us. And, and, and that's tragic. That's why I've often said, you know, there are a lot of people in prison that ought to be released and the parents put there. Uh, instead of them, because in a lot of cases, the parents are the ones responsible for them being like they are. And, and so there's a great need for communication, and that's what's going on here. Uh, it's a father communicating with his son, and, and notice who he speaks to. Verse 1, My son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding. We're living in the day of the absentee fathers. Is it any wonder our society is in the mess that it's in? The absence of masculine role models, masculine leadership is a scourge on our society. And uh, whenever you think about so many people that, that, that grow up nowadays with, with, without even knowing who dad is, or, or if they do, dad's never around, and... And, and it's hard to imagine, at least it is for me, being in that situation. Certainly my mom and dad weren't perfect in any sense of the word. But whenever I think back to the way that I was raised, and, you know, I, I can't even remember knowing anybody that was even divorced. I mean, really, I guess I was a teenager before I knew anybody like that. I knew couples that, you know, they fought with one another and things like that, but... Uh, it, it was it was just nearly unheard of, and nowadays it's nearly unheard of to see couples stay together for any length of time whatsoever. So this is a father speaking to his son, and uh, and, and notice that that as he does, he says, "Attend unto my wisdom," and, and so he's saying here that his wisdom evidently has been put on display, attend to it, pay attention, learn from it. And, and he doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, attend unto my words, I mean, not in this verse. And that would have been all right if he did. His words were important. But you know, you can say a lot of things and still not demonstrate wisdom. When my dad was... Uh, in the eighth grade, he had to drop out. His daddy had died, and uh, he had to drop out of, out of school and uh, basically help support the family. And he did that by being farmed out. He couldn't even live with them. Uh, he worked for a farmer and uh, just basically room and board and whatever little bit of money he had, well, you know, went to help Grandma and... Uh, and, and, and his siblings, and uh, so dad didn't get a good education. Uh, dad, you know, I wrote a poem several years ago, dad and 
And I said something about Dad never painted pictures rare, never flew airplanes through the air and stuff like that. But even though he lacked education, he was a man that had a lot of wisdom. And, and many, many of you know exactly what I mean. Some of the wisest people I've ever met have been, you know, old farmers or grandmothers that never had an education. And uh, you could just be around them, and being around them, you could tell that there, there was something unusual, something different about them. They were wise. They knew how to do things and what things they ought to do. And so he's saying to his son, basically, I want you to pay attention and learn from my wisdom. It's there for you. Uh, He didn't say anything about listening to his lectures because, you know, that doesn't always get the job done. So he has displayed his wisdom for his children. And then notice why he speaks, verse 2, explains why, that thou mayest. In other words, this is the reason. This is why I want you to attend unto my wisdom, that thou mayest regard discretion and that thy lips keep knowledge. So this is the purpose for what he just said. And this word discretion literally means to plan or devise or to project. And and whenever we go back to chapter number 4, and he talked about keeping the heart, and, you know, that's... That's part of the idea here is guarding one's thoughts and planning and regulating your course of action. And all of that's involved in that one word, discretion. And then notice he says that thy lips may keep knowledge. And that has to do with, with the lips speaking that which proceeds from knowledge. Uh, in, in other words, it's, uh, it's correct, it's right and it's one thing to say a lot of words, but it's another thing to say something that really means something, and that's the idea. And, and, and you can see that there's a contrast here because in the very next verse, he just told him that, that your lips may keep knowledge. Now, notice that it, he avoids foolishness in the very next verse. He's made this general statement, but now he moves on from a plea for attention to a picture of temptation. And he says in verse number 3, I lost my page here, uh, Yea, if thou... Now I turned too many. Verse 3, For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. So this, this is the warning here, and it's the warning of allurements uh, of strange women. And he's going to elaborate on that now. And and this takes up a good part of the section here as he talks about uh, the manner in which he will be enticed to sin. And notice verse 3. The first thing you notice is that she uses flattering and persuasive words. It says, For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. In, in chapter 7 to verse 5, he gives us an example of that, and I don't want to jump way ahead, but if you want to look there, you'll see that there's an example of what he's talking about here. And the point is, just as honey is sweet to the taste, her words will be attractive to the senses. In other words, she's going to say what he wants to hear. One of the one of the worst things that happened in America 
and don't misunderstand this because I realize there have been a lot of mothers that have had to work outside the home. Uh, I understand that. The children would have gone hungry if they, if they hadn't worked outside the home. But contrary to what the Bible teaches about the man being the provider and the woman the keeper at home, we've turned that upside down in America today and, uh, and so many children have been raised without either one of the parents being at home. Latchkey children. We had to coin a phrase in order to, to describe that because mom wasn't there and dad wasn't there. And so the women go off to work. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times that as a pastor that I've learned that so-and-so is having an affair and inevitably it's with somebody they met at work, somebody they work with. And, uh, you know, it kind of goes like this. The man, let's say, gets up in the morning, he and his wife has a little spat. I mean, that's just goes with the territory, right? When you're married, there are going to be times you're going to have a little spat and you grow accustomed to one another. You quit using flattering words, you know. And Boy, you remember how it was when you first started going together. Everything was sweetie pie this and sugar pie that. And I mean, just you, you just couldn't say enough kind things and, and, and you just fix yourself up the very best you could. Your hair was combed, your shoes shined, and had your makeup on and stuff like that in order to impress the other. But boy, then after you get married, you know, why it's for the first time you see each other as they really are. I've, I've never seen him with his hair not combed before, you know. And I've never, I've never seen her without makeup before. Is, you know, is this the same woman that I married? And so all of a sudden you find that you know, nobody lives up to the expectations, right? And so naturally there's going to be some conflict. So, so he goes off to work and, uh, you know, here's this woman at work and, uh, She's lonely, let's say, and so uh, she takes an interest in him, and naturally she's going to use flattering words. I love that shirt. Where did you get that, you know? You just look so good in there. I like the way you comb your hair. Or You all know where I'm going with this. She, she starts saying things that he hadn't been hearing. And she's using all of these flattering words. And after a while, it's, he's getting interested in her. And the next thing you know, you've got a full-blown affair. And let me tell you something, and, and we'll, we'll deal with this again in other places. Throughout the book of Proverbs, now, now please don't misunderstand this, and somebody will, no doubt, because I'm not saying it's always the woman's fault. But I'm saying throughout the book of Proverbs where it is speaking about this issue, it always speaks about the woman being the aggressor. And it works kind of like this. Even, even whenever a man, let's say, has made up his mind that he has made himself available to have an affair with someone, and he's on the prowl, he's on the lookout, and he'll generally begin by saying some little flattering things, and it'll move on to saying some things that can be taken either way. So, you know, if somebody hears him or if she doesn't like what he said, you know, he can say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry you took it that way. Of course he meant it that way. He's just using phrases that, you know, that he can justify and get himself 
out of. And so, you know, you've got this interaction going on. But the man, you mark it down, the, the woman, if, he, if she makes it clear, I'm not available, uh, he'll cut it off there. Uh, he's not going to risk going any further and being exposed for what he is and jeopardizing his marriage and things like that. So what I'm saying is that the, it's kind of like the woman that reaches that point to where she lets him know in some way or another, there are a lot of different keys, she lets him know it's all right, you can come a little closer, it's all right, you can say a little more, and after a while you've got an affair going on. And where does it start? Her words are sweeter than a honeycomb. In other words, they appeal to your senses. It's what you've been wanting to hear. And then notice, though, verse 4, he tells, he tells his son that she will bring bitterness. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, wormwood was a bitter and a poisonous herb. And so whenever he speaks about her end here, he's talking about or alluding uh, to her, but more than that, he's alluding to those that yield to her. In other words, the end of this affair, when it's all over, I mean, you know, it, it seems to be something that might be pleasurable now, but in the end, when it's all over, it's going to be bitter. And he likens it, notice, to a two-edged sword. That's an instrument of death. He's letting his son know that whenever you have an affair, you are literally risking your life. And he goes on, notice verse 5. Not only does she bring bitterness, she destroys. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Now, he alluded to that in, in the verse before, but now, I mean, this is as blunt as you can get. He just flatly declares that death awaits those that that respond to her. Now, notice verse number 6. Here's something else he tells his son. Her ways are varied so as to prevent the knowledge of her true character. Remember a while ago I was using the example of the man, and I, you know, I, I said that he will, he will shape his phrases in such a way that you can take it either way and... Uh, you know, if you're interested, you can take it in that way, and you know, and if you're not, and you let it be known, he can explain his way out of it. Well, well notice here, her ways are varied, he says, lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life. Her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Somebody was talking yesterday about the Texans, and uh, whenever Kubiak was the coach, and why... We kept losing games, and it was the fact that we were so predictable. I mean, everybody in the league knew exactly what we were going to do. Come the second half, the good teams always make adjustments. You have to. If you don't make any adjustments, you're going to lose. makes no difference how talented the players are. You're going to lose. You've got to make adjustments. And, and that's the picture here of this woman, that her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. In other words, there's, a, there's, an old, there's an old phrase that trappers use, you set on sign. 
Back when I was there, I was a kid, you know, and a lot, a lot of the boys made their money trapping muskrat and coons and possums and things like that. And, and you, you don't go to school out there and set a trap anywhere. You look for signs where the animals have been, and you set the trap on those signs. And, and, and naturally, you try to disguise it in some way. Well, that's what this woman is doing. Her ways are movable so that you don't know them. And she's, in other words, she's making adjustments. She's out to get this guy. And so she's plotting her course of action. And he, you know, in the beginning, he doesn't have a clue what's going on. I sat down with a couple here some years ago and tried to warn them and told them. And, 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 and the, the wife looked at me and said, but they're just friends. That's all there is to it. That wasn't all there was to it. And she had to find out the hard way the preacher was right and she was wrong and her husband had deceived her and, uh, and, and then accused me during the course of the meeting, accused me of making false accusations and designing Sunday school lessons just to uh, get my point across to them. Like I said to them, don't flatter yourself by thinking I'm going to design a, uh, an entire message just for you. I don't do that for anyone. I just preach whatever it is, and it happens to be this is where we're at. But by the way, since we're talking about it, let me warn you, there's something more going on here. It's not right. And, and I mean, it was obvious that the woman, this other woman, I mean, she had her claws out, and she was dead set intent on getting this guy, and she got him. She got him. And so that's why whenever we're dealing with Satan or anything by way of temptation, we've got to understand that, that he works with deception. It's been that way from the very beginning. And so it says that her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Now, verse 7. And on down through verse 14 in this section, there's a petition for obedience. In other words, he is pleading for his son to be obedient. And, you know, you know, after all that's already been said, I mean, you look at this and you would think, well, you, you, no more urging is really necessary, but it is. And in these verses, he gives us at least six things I see here that need to be Considered First of all, look at verse 7. Instructions must be heard and received. Notice he says, verse 7, hear me now. In other words, before it's too late. Hear me now. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Now. You know, all of us can look back and we remember our mom or dad telling us something. And at the time, we thought they don't know what they're talking about. But whenever we look back, we realize they were right all along, and we wish that we had listened to them. And so he's wanting his son to be able to avoid that kind of a heartache. So he says, hear me now, and then notice the next word, therefore. That means hear me right now in the light of all of these other things I've just said, what we've been talking about here tonight, in light of all of those facts, oh, you children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. So he's pleading with his son and with his children in this case that they will not depart 
from the teaching that he's given them. And then, verse 8, he tells them that not only must they hear and receive the instruction, but they have to shun evil. And this is where it gets down to the nitty-gritty, the part that, you know, is not easy. To be successful in life, we've got to do more than just learn stuff. I mean, you you have to get in the fight. You're going to be in the battle, and the temptation's going to come, and we have to resist. Notice verse number 8, he says, Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. You know, the picture that immediately comes to my mind is that of a whirlpool. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, around rivers, swift-flowing rivers, and you've ever seen a whirlpool. I mean, some of them are powerful. And you get too close to that whirlpool, and it literally just grabs you and sucks you in and takes you under. There's a point of no return. You know, it might be attractive to stand back and to... And to observe it, and you can get closer and closer, you can wade in the water or swim toward it, but there's a certain point to where when you reach that point, it's too late, there's no going back. And so that's why he says, remove thy way far from her. Remember the Bible says that we are to abstain from the very appearance of evil. Stay away from it, and come not nigh to the door of her house. You know, it's real easy for a young couple to think, you know, that we can we can park somewhere and make out and and not take it too far. We draw the line right here. And uh, what they don't understand is you get to a place to where you no longer have control any longer. And the the next thing you know, you're doing something that you vowed that you would never do because you got too close to the situation, and and that's why there that we whenever we know something is enticing, and you've heard me say before about where I used to hang out, but there was one bar in particular that I hung out most all of the time. In fact, attended bar there some and and what have you, and boy, for the longest time after I was saved, I wouldn't even go down that that street. I, I would take a different route. I didn't even want to go by there because although I'd been saved, I wasn't above being tempted. And, and by the way, none of us are ever above being tempted. And whenever we know that something is is, is a temptation, it's going to be enticing Get away from it. I mean, get as far away from it as you can. And so, you know, that's that's what he's telling his his children here. Remember the story of uh, of Samson, and he toyed with sin. He played with sin. It was a little game with him. Well, whenever it was over, it wasn't so funny, was it? He ended up doing great harm and being harmed greatly because he didn't take temptation serious. And it has to be shunned. Get away from it. Then notice verse 9. Reputation must be protected. He says, Lest thou give thine honor. And that's why I use the word reputation. Your honor. Lest thou give thine honor unto others and thy years unto the cruel. He's simply saying, Son, don't ruin your reputation by indulging in temporary sinful pleasure. 
you know, a lot of people have destroyed in a few minutes what it took them years to build. And all of us have a reputation of some sort. Somebody hears your name or they see you, and immediately it comes to mind, well, boy, there is, there, there's a really good person, a loving person, a kind person, a faithful Christian, but, but people are thinking something of you. And, and, you know, I've got to say, probably all of you have got a really good reputation in your community and on the job and in the church and it's taken years to develop that because, you, you know, you can't really have a good reputation if people don't know you, so it takes a long time, you know, for people to really know what kind of a person we are. But in just a matter of a few minutes, you can flush all of that down the commode. I mean, it's gone. You can destroy it in just a little bit. And I'm telling you, it's not worth it. Notice, and he says, and thy years unto the cruel. In, in, other, in, in other words, in the end, and, and he's talking about years now. It just took minutes to destroy your, your reputation, but now years are involved because we can do some things we can't ever undo. And we make decisions that we have to pay for for the rest of our lives. Verse number 10, impurity, he says, leads to poverty. So now he's going to get very specific now where all of this can lead. He says, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. There's a similar passage over in Hosea chapter 7 and speaking to Ephraim. And he says, strangers have devoured his strength and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the whole point is that the fortune, the fortune that you have acquired through hard work, the things that you have gained through years of toil, you can lose all of that by foolishness. When I first started out preaching, I was doing pulpit supply wherever I could, and the only regular place I had was the rescue mission. I mean, that's the drunks down on Main Street in Springfield, Missouri. And I'd go down there and preach to those drunks that come in there. The thing that really surprised me, and it took me a while to learn, because I figured all of these people are just low-life drifters, hobos, you know, that they'd never been anything, they're never going to be anything. Maybe they come from a bad environment, you know, and so you could kind of excuse them and, and all of a sudden, I began to realize some of them had been doctors and lawyers. We're talking about people with college degrees. We're talking about people that had been wealthy, and now they have nothing. They're sleeping down there in a flop house somewhere. It's all gone. They've lost their family, ruined their reputation. All of their money is gone, all because of impurity in their life. Now, verse 11, he just goes on. Here's another danger. Illicit sex can destroy your body. He says, notice, and thou mourn at the last. Well, there that phrase is again. At the last. Remember, he said, listen to me now. Pay attention right now. Lest you mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. I want you to turn back to Psalms 38 for just a minute. Psalms 38. 
the warning here by Solomon is that don't get involved in illicit sex because it will literally destroy your body. I want you to listen to David, Solomon's daddy. And he said in verse 3, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, and neither is there any rest in my bones. So this goes deep. This isn't a flesh wound. This isn't a scratch. He says, there's no rest in my bones. Notice, because of my sin, for mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. Now listen to this. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. And he goes on and on and on. Boy, you look at verse 7, and it's like he's giving you a description of venereal disease. His loins fill with a loathsome disease. Boy, whenever I think back over the years of my life and think about people that I have known, and I and I witnessed what their sinful lifestyle led to, and literally destroyed them. I mean, literally. And and to think about what they had been at one time. And I tell you, so many times we just assume that, uh, you know, that this illness, this sickness or whatever it is, we just assume that, oh, well, you know, I would have gotten that regardless. And sometimes we prematurely take God out of the picture, but David didn't. David attributed it all to God. He said, it's because of my sin. Not because somebody did something to me. Because of my sin, I'm in this condition. And God is the one that did it. And of course, God did it out of love. God's trying to correct him. And he's miserable. But I'm telling you, sin has an effect upon us physically. And we need to understand that, that God's not playing games. Now, notice, beginning in verse 12, sin also will haunt your conscience. And I want you to notice, and we'll just basically read through these, and, and, and as you do, I want you to think about those that uh, have looked back on their life and they've wondered to themselves, how could I have been so foolish? You know, why in the world would I choose to do what I did? Verse 12, and say... How have I hated instruction in my heart, despised reproof? Now think about it. Here's a fellow that was fortunate enough to have a daddy that cared enough to be a good example and to give him good instructions, and and he didn't appreciate it, and he didn't accept it. Until now he realizes what he's lost. Verse 13 and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers. Well, wait a minute. You see, Dad wasn't the only one. Now he's speaking in the plural. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers. 
other people that gave me instructions, other people that tried to help me. And he said, I haven't inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. Verse 14, I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. This is an expression of the severity of the sin here. Notice that phrase, almost in all evil. And, and, and I don't know how you take that, but to me that tells me that there was... It's like him saying there's scarcely any evil that, that I didn't commit. In other words, I run the gamut. I've, you know, I, I've done it all, been there, done that. In other words, he's lived a life that was unrestrained. Whatever he wanted to do, that's what he did. By the way, you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you learn... That's what he did. And notice even in the presence of God's people, notice the word congregation, because more than likely I think that probably speaks of the Israelites, the congregation. But notice the word assembly. That probably has to do with the leaders that judge the people. And here's the point. And I was thinking of this this afternoon when I looked at this and going to try to describe it to you. He said, I did this in the presence of the congregation and the assembly. That tells me his attitude was what we today call in your face. In your face. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you think about it. I don't care how it affects me. You see, he's not only sinful, he's stubborn. And so his sin was like in your face. And it's so amazing to me that, you know, people... You see, they're never content just living a sinful lifestyle. You know, they want to come out of the closet of whatever the particular sin is. And they don't want to just come out of the closet. They want to drag others down along with them. They're on a mission. They're not content to just go sin alone. I mean, they are on a mission to recruit others to live as they do. And, and so whenever you put all of this together, it's obvious that he's speaking about somebody with a troubled conscience that didn't listen to the advice that they were given. Now next, and we wrap this up tonight, but whenever we look ahead in their next message, we see that he's going to commence. Uh, well, he commenced with this admonition, but he's going to continue with advice concerning marriage. And you know, whenever you've been thinking about illicit sex, you're thinking about adultery and affairs and things like that, well, naturally, if you're going to get to the root of the problem, you've got to go back to the basics of marriage and what it's all about and the importance of it. And that's what he's going to do. And that's where we're going to be, Lord willing, whenever we meet next time. And we'll pick up in verse number 15.